For the Climate Discussion Nexus, I'm John Robson. And we start this week's readout video from our Wednesday Wake Up email newsletter with a question. Okay, we don't. We start with the usual pitch to share our work, subscribe to it, and contribute to it. We've now had over 75,000 YouTube subscribers, for which we're very grateful, and we've had almost 8 million views total. But we need more of you to become backers to ensure that we can keep asking questions like this one. And if and we don't... Specifically, what if our governments tell us to buy electric vehicles whether we want them or not, and whether we can charge them or not, and we don't buy them? We realize that by... 2035, when supposedly the Canadian government will have banned new internal combustion engine vehicle sales, if we do buy one of them, they can put us in jail right next to our car dealer. But in the meantime, they're supposedly going to mandate that 20% of model year 2026 cars must be EVs, 23% in 2027, 34% in 2028, and onward and upward. But if and we don't buy them? Will the first lucky or persistent one in five buyers, maybe who lined up all night on December 31st, get ICE cars, and the losers who come afterward get EVs or no car at all? Or will there be ration books with diesel car coupons? Or will there be a lottery? Or can companies just offer them for purchase and then sell us all good old ICE vehicles, leaving the EVs sitting around like those inedible rain sandwiches that New York saloons used to use to evade blue laws against serving alcohol without food? In C2C Journal, James Coggan, who we note approvingly is not just a writer and an editor, but also a historian in British Columbia, gives quite the detailed drubbing to the government's claim that Canadians will end up $9.5 billion richer by 2050 by being forced to switch kinds of cars. And he also notes the well-established, if within government and among activists well-ignored, fact that EVs don't respond well to heavy loads from pulling a trailer to transporting construction material. So again... What are the companies meant to do if we, or sensible buyers in other countries, don't want unreliable, unchargeable vehicles? Which, as Coggan details, they currently don't. Quote, Even the 2026 goal seems a big stretch, given that only about 6% of cars currently on the road in Canada are fully electric, and that EVs made up only about 5% of car sales in 2021, end quote. In that context, he then quotes the Parliamentary Secretary to Environment Minister Stephen Guilbeault, who claimed that these new rules are, quote, about making sure that Canadians have access to the vehicles they want, end quote. But if we wanted them, governments wouldn't have to force us to buy them. Car companies would sell them to us. Hey, they once sold us tail fins. They're not shy. The problem is we don't want them. So maybe the companies will just stop updating the model year, but I assume that even the government will catch on to that dodge eventually. And then what? They really seem not to have thought of it. Maybe climate fungus ate their brains. And certainly fungus movies are in these days, from the sport to annihilation, and there's that very trendy series, The Last of Us. And so, of course, news outlets are tottering around, moaning things like, quote, climate change also threatens to make several infection-causing fungi more widespread, end quote. And the specific mechanism in that story is apparently that, quote, the fungus that causes valley fever thrives in hot, dry soil, and the fungus that causes an illness called histoplasmosis prefers high humidity, end quote. And because climate change causes it to be wetter and drier at the same time, you can say goodbye to your brain. This story is basically all speculation with those cans and mites and coulds, plus lurid statements driven by the urge to publish or perish. And another thing. 
At the moment, NBC says, quote, 97% of all U.S. cases of valley fever are reported in Arizona and California, according to the California Department of Public Health, end quote. So it's not actually spreading. Moreover, most people who get it, quote, may never know they have it, end quote, because you just feel a bit fluey and then you recover. So it's not one of those gross deals where you stagger out into the sunlight, chomp on a leaf, and then grow a big spike out of your head, or the even worse one with houseflies. It's something where, with a few tragic exceptions, you feel a bit sick, and then you get better. Still, we are all going to die, because in the sci-fi world of climate science, the fact that it's not a threat doesn't mean it's not a threat. So in case The Last of Us hasn't sprouted in your living room, the National Post explains that, quote, a powerful introductory scene in The Last of Us shows a scientist in a talk show explaining that a rise in global temperatures could prompt the genetic evolution required for fungal pathogens to survive at higher temperatures, end quote. Which, apparently, they don't do now, so why does warming make them spread? The fictional scientist was also apparently unaware that the Earth had been much warmer in the past, so such evolution would already have happened if it were going to take place. Someone get that scriptwriter a new mug. And again, why would these pathogens need to quickly evolve to survive in warmer temperatures if, as we're also being warmed, they're already thriving and spreading due to warmer temperatures? Some scare this is turning out to be. In the newsletter, we also update a few stories that we have been following, including some local protesters blocking access to the site for Justin Trudeau's windmill farm to make his imaginary green hydrogen for Germany as well as more evidence that the U.S. Energy Department really is cooking up regulations to forbid most gas stoves, and a piece saying, quote, registrations of new electrical vehicles collapsed in Germany, end quote, falling about 83% after massive subsidies were cut. So, tell us again how they're actually a better deal and consumers know it? Actually, we shouldn't encourage them. They don't seem to need it. Over in the Green World Alternative Reality Simulation, The Atlantic's weekly planet chortles that, quote, fighting climate change was costly, now it's profitable, end quote, and according to Canary Media, quote, clean energy is cheaper than coal across the whole U.S. study finds, end quote, especially with free money for all. Quote, now with Inflation Reduction Act tax credits and federal financing on the table, the coal to clean transition is not just more cost effective than ever before, it can also be accomplished by building clean energy close to retiring coal plants, end quote. Strange that the people investing their own money don't seem to be drawn in by the situation, and that the more jurisdictions adopt this cheaper technology, the more horribly expensive energy becomes. But the zealots are also convinced that it's now clear that climate change is happening, right here and now, just as they were 20 years ago, but weren't, so now it's all changed by staying the same. If you're confused, well, this story comes from American Vice President Kamala Harris, which is never a good thing. As she put it with her inimitable clarity, quote, students who are here and those who are thinking about their role in this, you are going to come out and just leapfrog over all of us. Because, you know, especially for our younger leaders, the benefit that you have is you're not burdened by any question about is this real, end quote as opposed to her stodgy generation? Apparently so, because she said, quote, we've been having to deal with some folks who just literally, were kind of like, have you looked out the window, end quote. Yeah, we have. That huge piles of snow. Why do you ask? Didn't you see the February 9th NBC story, quote, sprawling storm brings snow, rain, and high winds to millions in the eastern U.S., end quote? Besides, if it's so obvious, why haven't Harris and her generation acted as we thought they had by passing the Inflation Reduction Act? The same question struck the Swedish scold, who just told the New York Times' David Wallace Wells that, quote, it seems like the world is getting more and more grim every day, end quote, which has nothing to do with Greta Thunberg lecturing us, but, quote, right now it seems the people in power just don't want to solve the climate crisis, end quote. Yeah, 
people like Justin Trudeau or Kamala Harris, who thinks that Greta Thunberg and her generation will leapfrog over her as she sits there because they both see the urgency of it and are both going to act immediately just like Harris didn't while doing it. Got it now? Oh, and have you got it now about DEI and ESG? They stand for Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion, which mandates uniformity, unfairness, and cancel culture, and Economic, Social, and Governance, though it's not clear Economic, Social, and Governance what, because those are all adjectives in forlorn quest of a noun. But both of these acronyms once seemed like a cheap way for companies to gain credibility with politicians and young people, because they didn't have to do anything except talk like politicians and young people and not really know what it was they were saying. Unfortunately, it turned out that what they were saying was, here's a good way for people who neither understand nor care about your firm to run it into the ground with an air of superiority, at which point things changed a little. Suddenly, investors and energy firms started charging away from ESG and back toward refining a lot of reliable fuel at high prices and selling it to people who needed it, because that process seemed in some strange way to contribute to prosperity, social well-being, and national security, whereas playing woke buzzword bingo didn't. Canada's heavily subsidized left-wing state broadcaster whined that, quote, Big Oil walks back climate pledges as earnings show 2022 was their most profitable year ever, unquote unlike, say, the CBC, with their massive subsidies in their dwindling audience. Showing the independence of mind typical of progressives, Britain's heavily subsidized left-wing state broadcaster whined that, quote, BP scales back climate targets as profits hit record, end quote, and then interviewed of all outfits Greenpeace, quote, whose voice the BBC has included because of the impact of oil and gas production on the environment, end quote. Not that we're blurring the line between journalism and activism. And Greenpeace, of course, commented on cue that the new BP strategy, quote, seems to have been strongly undermined by pressure from investors and governments to make even more dirty money out of oil and gas, end quote. But how can that be when we keep here that selling renewables is more profitable? Even the Davos people acknowledged that there were concerns over ESG, only to brush them aside with their aristocratic brush. Quote, ESG has been under increasing pressure lately. The Financial Times sees the future of ESG as at a crossroads. The Economist sees a broken system that needs urgent repairs, end quote. But while they concede some greenwashing and wokewashing scandals, they then say, quote, the question is, can ESG be saved, and if so, how? ESG doesn't need saving. It remains a clear ambition, but it needs transparency. In an increasingly fragmented and volatile world, it is more important than ever for companies to have a clear compass. Having a true north is a prerequisite for sustainable management and for creating value for all stakeholders, and thus for inclusive capitalism, end quote. Inclusive being the kind where these stakeholders take over your firm. But the problem remains answering the question, what have stakeholders done for us lately? Shareholders invest, workers work, managers manage, and customers purchase. But aren't stakeholders just busybodies happy to spend your money on their concerns and give nothing back? Yep. There's an apocryphal line from Lenin about capitalists selling communists the rope with which the latter would then hang the former. But ESG seems to be about giving them the rope even as they're busy erecting a gibbet. And for some reason, firms seem to be getting cold feet. How weird is that? In the newsletter, we also continue our fact check of Al Gore's rant in Davos. This week, we look at his claim that you-know-what is, quote, creating these atmospheric rivers, end quote. Except those colorfully named phenomena are as normal as the regular kind of river, and they've been around at least as long. 
The term was coined in 1998 to describe a pattern observed in the water cycle in which about 90% of the water vapor moving poleward in the atmosphere out of the tropics gathers itself up into relatively narrow channels that only take about 10% of the available space. But they didn't appear in 1998, they just got named then. And it's true that the IPCC didn't discuss them until its most recent sixth assessment report, but in that report it says they might be a bit more common now than in the past, but they might not. And even if they are, there's no evidence tying them to greenhouse gases. But what would the IPCC know? Al Gore has spoken. In the newsletter, we also note that all the clever people say that coral reefs are bleaching and dying off due to global warming, but that pesky data says otherwise. A new report by Australian marine scientist Peter Ridd, yeah, he's the guy famously fired from James Cook University for criticizing the sloppy work of some of his colleagues who insisted that the Great Barrier Reef was dying, well, he now says most reefs around the world are holding their own just fine, especially the Great Barrier Reef, which has twice as much coral as it did in 2011, despite multiple coral bleaching events. You go coral. And it did. This week's item from the CO2Science.org archive says that a study of Hawaiian reef coral, Montipora capitate, found that acidification posed no threat at all to it. Another scare bites the calcium. For the Climate Discussion Nexus, I'm John Robson, and I won't be buying an EV anytime soon.